0: Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Drew Nickel. AIMA is the global representative for the alternative investment industry, with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe with news, views and analysis delivered by Amos Global Team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you are a hedge fund or private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Before we start this week's episode, I have a quick disclaimer which states that this commentary is not intended to be investment advice, investment research or a recommendation and please consult your investment professional for your own circumstances. But with that said, this week we are returning to a fan favourite topic of digital assets to reflect on some of the big developments that happened over the summer and try and map out a path ahead for an asset class that has had a tricky year. Tom, you've just returned from Ama's European Digital Asset Forum in Zurich. What was the vibe like in the room?
1: That's right, Drew. There was a real fervour about the place. Uh, we had close to 150 or so attendees at our inaugural European Digital Assets Forum in Zurich last week. And despite everyone conceding that we are amidst a harsh crypto winter. There was no real let-up in the enthusiasm for digital assets in a real sense that as an asset class it is only at the early stage of maturation and adoption. Excellent. Well
0: to guide us through the latest developments in the digital asset space is ARCA CEO
1: Rain Steinberg. Rain, you're very welcome to The Long Short.
2: Thanks for having me guys, great to be
1: here. So Rain, before founding ARCA in, in 2017, you were in you know, the TradFi space is the founder of Wisdom Tree Asset Management. So could you take us through the journey then you've been on from identifying opportunities in the digital asset space, including, I guess, the cultural shift, underpinning the industry demographic, you know, replacing suits for, you know, proverbial hoodies, say, and any other differences that you've observed in your transition?
2: Sure. Uh, There are some things that are familiar and some things that are different. Um, just to give you a little context, I co-founded uh, the exchange-traded fund company Wisdom Tree in the early 2000s, and just to uh, set the stage, even as late as that, um, early 2000s, ETFs were not seen as a foregone conclusion. There were only $40 billion in assets, um, and a lot of asset managers were not very excited about a low-fee uh, investor-friendly way uh, to invest that wasn't sticky and offered liquidity, even though you think now, Wow, ETFs great idea. Obviously, everybody adopted them. We're at ten trillion dollars now. So when we founded Wisdom Tree, there was actually a lot of resistance uh, to that idea, uh, and that is one of the similar things that I see in digital assets. Digital assets are clearly a disruptive uh, technological innovation for financial services, uh, but for uh, financial services, a lot of like a lot of uh, you know established industries are very resistant uh, to change and disruption. Um, So we see similar patterns there that uh, entrenched traditional financial institutions um, have some difficulty with this transition, uh, but see the value and see the the power of it. So I see similar things to that early part of wisdom through the resistance, but also a lot of optimism um, and a lot of energy around the space uh, as well.
0: So I want to jump to one of the main events that's happened in recent months for the digital asset space, and that is the Ethereum Merge initiative, which was completed recently to much fanfare, but the value of ETH has fallen around 20% since the event. Given the clear shift that the Merge presented in making ETH much less energy intensive, right at a time when energy prices and ESG in general are very top of mind – some might assume that ESG should be spiking right now. Why isn't it?
2: Well, it's complicated, um, like a lot of things in digital assets. There are a lot of different forces going on. So, uh, first of all, um, it wasn't just really energy efficiency necessarily um, that was going to drive the uh, price of ETH or the merge. Uh, that was, you know, one of the motives behind it, but not necessarily the only one. And a big piece. Uh, was the change in the amount of ETH uh, that was created pre- and post-merge. So you had about a 88% reduction uh, in the amount of ETH issued post-merge. So the supply was very constrained afterwards. Again, you would think, wow, this would be uh, incredibly bullish, and a lot of people did. Um, but I would say that our view on this is that you were going to see uh, very, very uh, spiky, noisy, Uh, things around the merge, both in front of it and post it. There was a lot of people that were playing the merge, had to unwind positions. There were Ethereum miners that had large positions of Ethereum that would no longer be mining, that were selling post-merge. And then you have the overall uh, macro environment and other things pushing uh, on both ETH and other currencies. So in the short term, and we only finished the merge, you know, September 15th, I guess in uh, digital asset years, that's actually quite a long time ago, but uh, if you think about it, a relatively short term, um, and you still haven't really seen uh, the actual long-term effects of the merge. That's decreased supply, uh, the ability to have yield generated more easily from ETH in DeFi and staking projects. Um, so we really still think that this is probably over the next six to 12 months, one of the best ways to play the overall growth of digital assets, um, it's still the biggest proof, uh, you know, layer one uh, protocol. Um, so a lot of things depend on ETH, and as digital assets expand, uh, so will ETH. So we have a very bullish view on Ethereum over the next six to twelve months. But like any anything in digital assets, you're going to see a lot of noise in the short term, um, and just because of the volatile nature of the space, uh, what would be you know, a cataclysmic type of event in a traditional asset, you know, a 20% reduction over a short period. Um, that's, uh, you know, all within the statistical, um, you know, probability uh, within digital assets. So not to be unexpected. And we, we do expect a lot of volatility in the short term. And
1: uh, But Bitcoin then would be the only major cryptocurrency then using this proof of work model. Is that right?
2: Um, the only major one. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. And then, when you think about that, when we asked uh, that question, I think uh, we, when we talk about proof, proof of work, um, and energy consumption, um, and some of the concerns about that, and you mentioned ESG, I think what's important for people to remember, first of all, on ESG, there's other parts uh, to the E and the S and the G. We spend a tremendous um, amount of time focused on the E portion uh, of ESG. Uh, so that's the environment portion and that's rightly so but not so much uh on the s and the g and i just want to spend a little moment on the g portion uh, of this yeah governance uh when we think about it um an incredibly important uh goal but generally when people talk about governance in esg context it'll be something as minor as board diversity or things like that but when you think about real governance change which is Who controls the decision-making powers of an entity, a government, a currency, things like that, uh, where control resides? That's really changes in governments. Uh, And this is really the value proposition of blockchain. Uh, This is one of the biggest governance revolutions that we've ever had in history. Um, And the energy consumption of something like Bitcoin uh, is really relative, if you think about it. Now, if you have a negative view on the project of Bitcoin overall and are very skeptical about the value of an independent currency or a hard-to-control or centralized currency, then you're probably going to put a very low value on energy or any amount of energy used to secure such a network. Now, on the flip side, if you think that there's an incredibly high value to have a independent currency um, that is outside of control or confiscation or things like that, then a very large amount of energy uh, might be used for that. And one of the interesting things about Bitcoin when it comes to energy, it can be co-located around uh, green energy. And there's a very high percentage of uh, renewable energy that's used for Bitcoin. A lot of Bitcoin mining uh, is driven by uh, energy that on the grid um, that would either be wasted, flared, or things like that. Um, So the energy uh, kind of problem on ESG is when it comes to Bitcoin is a little bit, I think, misguided. Um, and it's definitely much more of a governance issue. And then when you think about the actual value proposition of proof of work, um, this is why uh, proof of work still has value. Energy and energy used to secure a network is something that cannot be faked, um, cannot be manipulated, cannot be consolidated. It's a certain amount of work um, that is being put in to the network and that is only driven by the amount of value that people associate about it so it's really a way of giving value to energy to secure something like that so i think that there's definitely a place for it it remains to be seen like how that plays out but it's not just as simple as um, this chain uses more energy therefore it has a higher environmental impact it's a slightly more nuanced conversation
1: could could you make a leap then, or rather, could I make a leap then in thinking about the merge and to the extent that if it is being underpinned um, by more of an ESG, an energy intensive uh, view of things, uh, could you make the leap that that's likely to draw in investors that would be uh, acknowledging the, the value of ESG. So maybe some of the larger investors, say, may then see this as being uh, an attractive entry point then to enter sure. investing in a, currency.
2: You, you could say that. Um, there's a couple of things that you could say about larger investors, and, and this is a moment for it, and why we also think that the merge um, in this moment in time is very important. So first of all, um, there's not many major currencies – um, that large investors can invest in. There's only the the currencies for that is only about 300 billion um, in total market cap. So it's it's a very small universe already. Um, then if you start limiting it to concerns around ESG um, and things like that, your world becomes uh, even smaller. Um, then uh, when you actually get down uh, to things like a use case, um, value proposition, things that are well understood. Um, that becomes even more narrow. So that's why, again, um, when we talk about institutions, pensions, endowments, foundations that have, you know, mandates that are driven that they can't invest in any of these things, they want to express uh, a investment view in this, this is, again, why on all of those levels, we think Ethereum makes a lot of sense. And I can tell you, our pipeline, uh, we're an institutional asset manager at ARCA. Um, we deal primarily with pensions, endowments, foundations... Uh, large, sophisticated institutional investors. The problem that they're having is they actually want, they're very under-invested in this space. They think it's going to be a very important part of their fintech allocation going forward, but there's actually not enough projects, not enough companies, not enough places that meet uh, their thresholds to invest in it. So it's really a dearth of investment opportunities. And that's, again, where something like an ETH, both on size ESG component uh, well understood you know embedded network all those things are one of the only places that those large institutional dollars can go and we see that as a tailwind uh, for eth over the next uh, six to twelve months as well
1: so if we could momentarily dwell a little bit on 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 headwinds and and obviously we, we are acknowledged as well at the top of the episode in a crypto winter and that that message was loud and clear at our forum last week amongst the delegates present. Um, You know, there is a correlation uh, in terms of how digital assets performs versus public markets, and we have seen also a significant drop in value across some of the leading equity markets globally. So I put it to you then, would... We need to wait for the end of, of that correction in public markets before we see a pickup um, in recovery for digital assets more broadly.
2: Well, that's kind of the, you can call it the $300 billion question, the $1 trillion question, or if you extend it out into fixed income and equities, the tens of trillions to $100 trillion question. Um, obviously, um digital assets are a risk asset at a certain point, um, and all assets are risk assets at certain points. Um, The interesting thing about this moment in time is we really haven't experienced yet um, in recent memory uh, kind of a rising uh, interest rate environment um, where the threat of inflation uh, really has shown up and to start to see central bank uh, response to it right now. So... If we look at the overall world, we're seeing um, a very large central bank response, uh, very fast, especially from the Fed, um, and then with other central banks following. And this has crushed risk assets across the board. So you've had a very big diminishment in digital assets, but this is also uh, the worst uh, year uh, for fixed income uh, and equities for the 60-40 portfolio on history or since 1928. Um, you know, dwarfs what happened in the financial crisis when you look at what, at what has happened to both bonds um, and equity. So along that backdrop, you're looking at a very, very um, chaotic environment. Uh, the interesting thing that's happened, while you've had a tremendous amount of pain um, in digital assets, you know, eighty, ninety 90 percent down um, from peak, that's actually started uh, to stabilize and correlations have actually started to break down um, in recent weeks Um, And I think what you're seeing is as you start to see uh, central bank policy diverge and some cracks in kind of a unified approach, um, the value proposition for digital assets um, is starting to come out again and not just being seen as a proxy for risk. Uh, An example of that is where um, central banks were all hiking uh, until briefly. Uh, We all know (laughs) our friends in Great Britain. Um, recently blinked um, over pensions. And what we've actually seen is we've seen a, actually a huge spike uh, for the first time in a, you know, major currencies, uh, Great British Pound and Euro um, on conversion to Bitcoin over this period. So this idea um, where um, Bitcoin specifically over the short term has not looked like a risk-off asset or a store of value or things like that, um, we haven't seen the environment where you've seen real central bank um, confidence being shaken or the lack of you know, people thinking you really can't get inflation under control. That environment has not shown up. So during this period, you've seen a very, very tight correlation between digital assets um, and um, basically the NASDAQ. Uh, It's traded a lot like tech stocks, it's been like a 24-7 proxy for risk. Um, That started to break down over the last month. So while equities and bonds have continued to go down um, over the last last month, uh, digital assets have been flat um, broadly. So that's Ethereum and Bitcoin. Um, But then what we've also seen, very interestingly, is you've seen pockets of dispersion. Um, Things like Ripple, uh, Ape, uh, Luna Classic, um where idiosyncratic things that are going on in that digital asset have started to express themselves so this is actually we think an indication that you might actually see a turnaround in digital assets uh, a lot longer or earlier um, than in the traditional world remains to be seen um, but that's what we're starting to see now this may be a much shorter a violent crypto winter but a much shorter one uh than in the past
1: as you, as you say, initial signs of decorrelation, which, yeah, that's, that is fascinating. One, and a story definitely to follow over the coming weeks and months. Yeah. Yep.
0: AIMA's annual flagship regulatory event, the Global Policy and Regulatory Forum, returns in person for the first time in two years, this November, in Paris. The event gives the hedge fund industry a unique opportunity to engage with senior policymakers and regulators from around the world as they explore the overall macro outlook of the industry, while considering how investment strategies are evolving in light of investor and regulatory pressures. The full-day conference will include a range of keynotes, panels and breakout sessions for delegates to choose between, as well as long-awaited networking opportunities with peers both old and new. To read more or to register, visit our website www.aima.org. If, if we were to apply a generous interpretation of, of recent events and some of the, the headlines, at least of uh, certain blow-ups and issues across exchanges and other areas of the digital asset infrastructure, some commentators have suggested that although it's obviously uncomfortable in the moment, it does present an opportunity for the industry as a whole to reflect and ultimately grow and become more robust and be an industry that places maybe a greater emphasis on on risk management and is ultimately healthier for the experience. Is that a statement that you would agree with? And and if you do, could you give us some ideas of the practical steps that the industry itself should be taking as opposed to regulators?
2: Sure. Um, So interestingly, Um, You know, the proposition of the whole digital asset ecosystem is this decentralized, um, you know, thing that is outside of control that avoids moral hazard and all the things that are great about decentralization. The problem with decentralization is it's still very hard to make it work practically. Um, It's still hard to coordinate um, activity in a kind of an executive manner uh, across projects and DAOs and things like that. So this this trade-off between... Decentralized governance and true decentralization um, and, you know, kind of a listless <laughs> approach to your project versus centralizing and having a more executive control, uh, that's what we're constantly challenged with. So what we saw um, in this recent drawdown was uh, very interesting. The, the people that had um, challenges and problems were centralized entities. Uh, still exposed to the space, but making the same t- type of centralized entity problems um, and you know challenges that this space was designed to address. Um, you know, a company deciding to lend to three arrows on very little uh, due diligence, or too concentrated a book, or things like that. So the bankruptcies and the counterparty issues that kind of swept through the ecosystem were the same ones that kind of swept through in the financial crisis or long-term capital management or things like that, where poor risk decisions were made um, by centralized authorities. In this space where the volatility is bigger, um, there's less opacity and things like that, it could seem more violent, Um, but very similar to the effect. What was interesting um, is the things that were not Centralized, decentralized exchanges, decentralized finance, things like that, that had mechanical ways that order books were maintained, mechanical liquidations, mechanical collateral. They actually performed quite well, Um, and you actually have seen a bigger percentage of these things taken up um, by these decentralized exchanges and things that did that mechanically. So while volumes and values were destroyed across the board, the the piece of a pie. Um, that were run by those things are actually taking it. And so I see this as a very healthy um, exercise, that um, this is bad risk takers are carried out. Um, This is a space where the asymmetric upside, there's still a chance to make a lot of money and money back. It's very much about sizing and risk management. Um, But that's what this space is about, about risk management being thoughtful about size, being thoughtful about your exposure, paying your taxes, counterparty due diligence, working with people that you trust in this space, and things like that. So this is always a very valuable period. These winters that take out bad actors and take out the the exuberance. But the interesting thing is, we also haven't need bailouts um, or other things. It's a self correcting uh, ecosystem. So we basically probably experienced the entire from the collapse of Luna uh, and the wash out of three arrows in an entire financial collapse and where we are now in several months, as opposed to several years.
1: Um, rain, just, just to reflect a little bit on uh, moving away from, from cryptocurrency and, and looking at an area that intrigues me, which is NFTs, uh, you know, according to some estimates, trading volume of NFTs is down nearly a hundred percent from its peak this year. Um, So on the face of it, this isn't really good at all, but, you know, could that shift away from, you know, virtual real estate selling for six-figure sums um, and the stories of bored apes and whatnot, you know, could that shift away be good for general adoption of NFTs, given the tokens can do so much more? Um, and, And then for our listeners, could you describe, you know, how an NFT might help in the everyday transaction um, and why that might ultimately be more important than, you know, various headline grabbing sales of, of the digital status sure. symbols that seem to, you know, accommodate yeah. the NFT space.
2: Yeah, um, it, it's interesting. It's a, it, Thanks for that question. And it's interesting to think about this space in just the amount of time that we're talking about it. So we're talking about something that's under 15 years uh, old at all, from the advent of Bitcoin to now and the things that have subsequently come out of it. And we've seen... Waves of speculation and speculative aspects driving all aspects of this. So I would say similar to what's happening now in the NFT space, this um, complete obliteration of trading volumes, value, all of that is very similar to what happened uh, to the digital asset space um, in 2018 and 2019. So this huge run up in 2017, uh, the ICO boom, where a lot of there were good projects, but also a lot of very bad projects as well and then a collapse in value price and things like that. The projects that came out of that um, were very important. You got decentralized exchanges, DeFi, um, things like that that are actually creating value. Still very much of infrastructure in this space, and I would also correlate that to kind of the beginning of the Internet, where, you know, invented in, in the early 90s, um, you had the dot-com boom, speculative boom, and then... Uh, collapse and then you had the real players come out of it like amazon google uh, and fundamental projects uh, similar to that you had that in digital assets we're going through that right now uh, in nfts so nfts started with uh, the speculation around basically pixels or images um, and wild speculation around that speculation from zero going out to a very big point but what the the interesting thing about what those pixels represent and what people should think about NFTs representing is really individual digital ownership. Uh, Ownership of digital things in a way that you can transact and move them around. And where we have a very linear thing about thinking about that, and one of the reasons NFTs and pixels communicated was because art is understandable. Collectibles are understandable. Scarcity is understandable. So that was something that was very important for making NFTs understandable to people. But then when we get out of like utility of that, an NFT can represent your digital identity or the way you communicate with people online. It can represent digital ownership of something in the real world in the digital space um, and assigning a specific value of that that's transferable and easily moved around. So this is really creating digital scarcity and ownership in the digital space. So early on, it started with pixels, things like that. But then we're going to move on to things like utility, um, like I said, like around identity, around physical objects. Um, one of the very interesting ones that is hard for uh, people of a certain age to get their hands around because I'm not really a gamer um, is the amount of time that people spend in games. Um, and this is really a phenomenon. And uh, earn, you know, earning in gaming, where you spend a lot of time, and that you're able to take your earnings out of it and port them over to something else and not just leave it in a game. That may not seem meaningful to people that don't play games, but gaming has overtaken movies and entertainment uh, in value. Gamings and esports <laughs> are the largest and most watched things in things like the Pan Asian games. So um, these are huge things that allow people that play games to monetize uh, what they do there and take it out of in game areas. So there's all sorts of very interesting areas. Um, You still need utility. You still need adoption. um, You still need people using it. But it started with this idea of digital scarcity and pixels and speculation, um, but is becoming broader and more useful.
0: It's fascinating, actually, because I remember many years ago when I first heard about games like World of Warcraft, where people were selling their accounts or selling World of Warcraft gold in you know for dollars in the real world and how that sort of simple idea is translated and now i see certain sports i think maybe the ufc is leading on this there there may well be others but you can buy a knockout moment or certain you can engage with the sport in a whole different way through this idea of nfts which is there really is huge scope there but I, i guess maybe it is slightly more esoteric or slightly more difficult to get your your head around than just like an image but it seems like there's headroom
2: yeah there's 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 plenty of it to go but it is it's one of those things that is kind of nebulous uh until it exists games and where people have an emotional attachment art things that people understand in the tangible world collectibles where people understand scarcity already these are the reasons why things like bored apes Um, and collectibles immediately made sense to people. This was something that they got. They understood art. They understood scarcity. and They understood how that could work. Um, It can also be a a huge uh, degradation in value and user volumes over that period if that's all there is. Uh, But you're going to see, just like digital assets, when more utility um, and usefulness and also ease of use, we're talking about right now in NFTs, you have to interact with MetaMask, Um, and places like OpenSea and be very technically proficient right now to do anything with both digital assets and NFTs. And this is a huge problem for our space. Uh, Usability, mobile adoption, uh, penetration like that. Uh, We're still probably earlier than the internet in the 90s uh, in actual true user adoption, so it's still that early. Um, But that's a lot of the problems with um, just the earliness of the technology.
0: So we've mentioned a few potential growth areas there now, and really interesting to hear your sort of bullish take on on ETH and NFTs. But just to throw that wide open in terms of growth opportunities, we've spent a lot of time on headwinds. And digital assets is so much more than just, you know, ETH, even though that does take up a lot of the oxygen in the room. Where else are you looking? What else are you seeing?
2: Um, This is one of those times when you see – it's fascinating the things about digital assets and the opportunity set uh, changes dynamically all the time so while there's been a very large uh, reduction in price in the liquid token market um, there has not been such a adjustment in price uh, in the early stage venture area so uh, things like pre-seed and uh, venture early venture deals there's still tens to hundreds of billions of dollars in newly raised funds waiting to deploy in that area in these venture deals looking for the next coinbase the next board apes things like that the very interesting thing that i found which is kind of um, more boring um, but still very interesting is the things that have actually already found uh, product market fit um, where there's just been a decrease in price and kind of uh, revenue but mainly over Um, the decrease in price in the ecosystem. But once these things return, there's tremendous leverage. There's very low fees. Um, So we see these things on things like Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange. Uh, Places like Nexus Mutual, which is a decentralized uh, mutual insurance company. So these are real businesses where the tokens are down tremendously. Um, User adoption and things like that are high. Um, But valuation, because prices and things like that are much lower. So there's a lot of activity in kind of the infrastructure and financial products of liquid tokens that we liked them at many multiples higher than this uh, that are very, very cheap uh, compared to some of their traditional counterparts, like, to use Nexus Mutual again as an example, uh, like a lemonade uh, or some of the uh, fintech uh, insurance companies. Much cheaper on that. Uh, much higher growth metrics, um, much higher uh, potentials for revenue, and much lower cost bases. Uh So huge opportunities uh, in that area.
1: And just thinking about uh, jurisdictions um, and regulators that are embracing the digital assets sector, I mean, as mentioned, we were in Zurich last week, and there's a real uh, frenzy of activity and interest around digital assets in Zurich, which surprised me. I mean, if you pick up the papers, it's all the talk is all about London being the, the crypto hub. But Zurich is definitely putting itself out there and putting itself on the map, maybe through early adoption. But what other areas do you see, you know, that stands out in terms of interest, but also where policymakers and regulators, you know, have been looking to try to facilitate sure. access to this space?
2: Yeah, um, Switzerland um, has made a big push. And it definitely aligns with their kind of like history of banking privacy um, and things like that. So it uh, makes a lot of sense uh, for a place like that. Another interesting jurisdiction um, is Malta. Um, and they've had their, the gaming space there as the entree into the EU. Um, so interesting as well. Uh, in Asia, Singapore, um, and the Mideast, uh, Dubai, in um, the UAE. Um, All of these things, I think, are going to be important. We focus uh, still on the U.S. Um, There's a huge amount of capital here, quite frankly. Our clients are institutions. And even um, not great regulation, but just clarity around regulation is helpful for our clients. So I would say the biggest issue that we've had is kind of either mixed signals or kind of a slowdown. Um, we are regulated by the SEC, our two entities, um, and we've had tremendous, uh, tremendously positive uh, interaction with staff. Uh, there is not an opposition to this. It's still a technology that is hard to fit into the centralized securities framework um, to understand how to regulate it. Like on something just as simple as a custody question for Bitcoin, all the custody rules about a security and how it works, it really doesn't apply (laughs) to something like Bitcoin. Bitcoin, you don't own it. You know, like people have this idea of a wallet. Um, The wallet is where you keep your private keys and like demonstrate your control of a certain period. But if somebody, you hear the phrase, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, um, if somebody gained control of those keys, they would control it. So our concept of a centralized clearinghouse, DTC, custody, and the way that works, it, it just doesn't line up with this space very easily. So I'd say the, the regulators are actually, I'm pleasantly surprised with how um, kind of forward-looking they're being and how they understand that this is a very important technology and are working towards it. But it just takes time um, and you need patience if you're going to be dealing in the regulated space.
1: I was going to say that is you, these comments come out despite the headlines last week, you know, coming out of the US, where regulators give the impression anyway that you know they're frowning upon digital assets. But you know, I put it to you, you see them as becoming more open, and good regulation, sound regulation, is going to allow for greater adoption and greater maturation of this asset class.
2: Yep, and I would say what's interesting that drives that and which gives me. The optimism about that um, is kind of the apolitical nature of digital assets. Um, we saw this um, about a year and a half ago in our infrastructure bill, and I think policymakers were surprised at a the vociferous nature of our space that um, you know something as simple as what they thought was like a, a non-event of just having to report the taxes of this, but how actually vociferous our space could be, how well healed it had become but also how nonpartisan. Uh, there are very few um, issues in the U.S. Uh, spe- I'm Slightly familiar with the rest of the world, but here in the U.S. we have a very fractured political environment. There are very few truly um, apolitical issues, and I think what um, our policymakers found was that digital assets were neither um, a Republican or a Democrat issue, um, that there were people on both sides of it that had strong feelings about it, Um, And that it was not a very easy wedge issue to make to just say we were going to stamp out, um, you know, cryptocurrency or whatever, um, and that one side or the other would uh, feel okay about that. So that's what kind of gave gives me um, the positive view about that. And I think there's always going to be a push pull between regulators on something that kind of takes away um, a centralized overview. Um, but we're working with the SEC. We have the uh, one of the first 40 act regulated funds where, you know, we think it allows better and easier regulation and a better experience for investors, uh, lower fees, things like that. Um, so we think that there's a lot of things that digital assets help regulators do well uh, once they're implemented properly.
0: Rain, you've been really generous with your time already. But before we let you go, I just wanted to sort of leave you with the with the final word really just to uh, maybe you know throw a comment out to our listeners we, we like to think we have a fairly broad base of listeners you know from uh, people representing institutionals all the way through down to uh, maybe members of the media and, and retail investors and or casual investors especially in digital assets is there anything that you would really like them to know you know in the current environment today um, maybe in sort of in the in the absolute darkest days of the winter
2: Yes. Um, so I've obviously thought a lot about this. Uh, we founded ARCA um, really in the teeth of the last uh, bear market. Um, and what we did a lot of talking to about it, it's very funny. I seem to, to only be raising money um, at the time. <laughs> Nobody wants to deploy it. Uh, what it turned out to be for something like this, if the digital asset re- revolution is real and substantial, this is incredibly early. And the times that have made this, it's been way more important uh, to have some exposure to it in an appropriate amount than trying to time um, that. And the vast majority of people that I speak to are vastly underweighted this asset class if it is going to be an important one. So I would suggest people um, get off zero um, and get some exposure to it just to see it and, and, engage with it not just as an investment um and understand the philosophy behind it um you know buy an nft um you know get bitcoin in a wallet stake ethereum somewhere try some of this stuff um is what i would say and if any of this resonates uh take a deeper uh look even beyond uh, investment so get off zero um and you're most likely underrepresented to this if it is going to be important
0: Excellent. Something maybe Benjamin Graham or some of the the fundamentals investors might appreciate. Just uh, it's not too early, is that fair to say? So
2: definitely not too early. <laughs> I think a, lot, a, lot, a couple <laughs> months ago, maybe even more get now.
0: Off, get off, zero. Get off zero. I, it. I like it. Dan. Well, I say thank you so much for your time today on the long short. Uh, there really is never a dull moment. And I always learn so much on these episodes. So we really appreciate you coming on and giving us a walkthrough on uh, what's been happening recently. Thank you.
2: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Nina Harrison-Bell, Head of ITM Business, and you're listening to Aimers: The Long Short Podcast. Join me in Episode 8, where we discuss how best to deliver digital content. Enjoy.
0: Longshore was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the Alternative Investment Industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Longshore on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.